Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So Cam, thank you very much for giving up your time. And you probably heard that the webinar we had last week was a uh, record-breaking webinar. The most number of people tuned in to, to watch the session and the presentation. And we've got questions relating to it. So first question mm -hmm. from uh, a member. What would be the reason for myopic patients to be complaining about flashes some years after a PVD? You know, those presentations where people are still, a couple of years later, still talking about the flashes. Why might that happen? So this is quite common. Uh, and it's not just myopic patients. I think many patients with post-gravitrous detachment can experience flashes. Uh, I think for them to experience them for years after it is slightly unusual. And in that case, one should uh, certainly think about other causes of flashes. Uh, and this is covered in detail in uh, my PVD webinar that's available on the college website. But if we s assume that the source of the peripheral, uh, and it's important to make sure that they are peripheral photopsias, is a PVD, well, why do people get flashing in the first place? Well, we think this is due to the tractional effect of the posterior hyaline coming away from the retina, uh, which causes the flashing light. So that's relatively easy to understand. What we don't quite understand is why do those flashes then continue to persist uh, months afterwards? Now, it may be that in some areas, the posterior hyaline hasn't fully detached, and, and that certainly is well recognized. Um, and that could be a cause of persistent photopsias. Uh, and then one could envisage that as the posterior hyaline is completely separated, then the photopsias hold. Uh, in other cases, we see people in whom you're confident that the vitreous is completely separated, but they still experience uh, flashes. Um, the answer to the question overall is we don't know. We don't know why uh, these people in whom the vitreous is completely separated, uh, why their photopsias don't stop at the point of complete separation. As I said, we sh you should always look at other causes. So if the flashes are central uh, or if they're bilateral, uh, maybe associated with other symptoms like headache, etc. Think about non-ophthalmic causes of flashes um, and, and not assume that it is purely related to the PVD. We'll talk about <clears throat> lattice degeneration now. Would you refer lattice degeneration if there were atrophic holes or just with tears? Lattice itself is uh, present in about 30% of all retinal detachments. But the presence of lattice itself only confers about a 1% risk. So if you have lattice, only about 1% of people with lattice will end up with a retinal detachment, which itself occurs in only about 1 in 10,000 people per annum. Now, what aspects of lattice confer this risk? Well, it's the development of retinal breaks, and that would be either atrophic round holes or horseshoe tears. Now, horseshoe tears we covered quite comprehensively. These are high-risk retinal breaks. And about a third of horseshoe tears occur outside areas of lattice. Um, tears, if they're acute, confer a very high risk of retinal detachment, between 30 to 50%. So whether there's lattice associated with them or not, they should be referred urgently. 
Um, if you find uh, a horseshoe tear uh, in the presence of lattice or without lattice, and it's found purely on uh, routine clinical examination in an asymptomatic patient, the risk of that tear causing a retinal detachment is around 5%, which is still high enough that you would want to do something about it. So yes, you would still refer that patient, but with far less urgency. So that's the type of patient you would not immediately send to your eye department, but call your eye department first so they can decide when they want to see them. So, so that deals with the tear aspect. And it's important to hear it's more about the break rather than the lattice part in this question. So, so the horseshoe tears, you refer. It's as simple as that. Uh, but how quickly you refer depends on how the patient presents. With atrophic round holes, the vast, vast majority of these never cause a retinal detachment. And retinal detachments that are clinically significant, i.e. ones that are progressing well beyond the equator and becoming symptomatic, uh, the incidence of those is only 1 in 100,000 per annum. And atrophic holes are far more common than that. Uh, with or without lattice. So if you are completely confident that it is just an atrophic round hole, um, not a horseshoe tear, and that uh, there's no significant degree of subretinal fluid, then it doesn't need to be referred. If you have atrophic holes with or without lattice that have a reasonable amount of subretinal fluid around them, and they can, they they often have cuffs of subretinal fluid, but if you think there's quite a lot in an asymptomatic patient, and asymptomatic suggests either slowly progressing retinal detachment or non-progressing, uh, or possibly even resolving, then those are the types of patients, again, call your ophthalmology department and just ask them when they would like to see the patient. Um, and, and that's how I'd manage those. But the, the third category would be lattice without any breaks. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, for the reasons above, those do not need to be do not need to be referred. Uh, even what we call so-called symptomatic lattice. Well, lattice itself doesn't cause symptoms. Uh, when someone gets so-called symptomatic lattice, that's actually the posterior vitreous detaching that's causing the symptoms in someone who already had lattice, right? Um, and again, unless there's any horseshoe tears or an atrophic hole that's causing a retinal detachment, it doesn't need to be uh, referred in just give standard retinal detachment advice and, and, and manage that patient as though uh, they were just a, a, a tear uh, or a retinal detachment. That's really helpful. It's certainly created lots of clarity in my mind about those three groups. So, um, so I'm sure it will for our listeners as well. Question about hemorrhages now. How often mm -hmm. might you see a, a hemorrhage in a patient with a PVD? Does that happen? And would they go on to retinal detachment? I think here it's very important to be clear what we mean by hemorrhage. First of all, you want to, when you look into the vitreous cavity, you want to make sure it's not tobacco dust. And often people get confused between the two. Uh, and again, this is highlighted in my webinar, but tobacco dust is brown-orange pigment, and that confers around a 90% risk that there's a tear. Okay? And if there's a fresh tear, there's about 30 to 50% chance that that will cause a retinal detachment. So th that's a very, very high-risk sign. Hemorrhage itself, we would tend to separate um, in a qualitative fashion into whether it's just very mild or significant. 
By very mild, I mean that when you look into a patient who's had an acute post-revitreous attachment, you can just see a slight haze related to very mild hemorrhage. And we think the source of this hemorrhage, which is very common in acute PVD, is just rupture of uh, surface capillaries from the optic nerve head as the vitreous separates, uh, the visum separates from the optic nerve. Now, that uh, is the second strongest of all vitro-retinal or vitro-papillary uh, uh, attachments. So you can see why there might be some trauma to these tiny little capillaries. Because they are tiny capillaries and because um, bleeding will ultimately stop, the degree of hemorrhage is very slight. So a slight amount of hemorrhage in the context of acute PVD is uh, very common and may even be considered to be on the spectrum of normal in someone who had a PVD. That's to be contrasted with very significant hemorrhage. So if you look in and you can see lots of blood, and it's very obvious, and it might be lying inferiorly or diffusely uh, spread throughout the vitreous cavity, then that's probably not just tiny little surface capillaries. Um, the most likely cause of that, and the most likely cause of a very dense vitreous hemorrhage in someone who isn't diabetic or got other reasons, uh, is actually a retinal tear that has occurred through a peripheral blood vessel as well as retina. So the peripheral blood vessels will be obviously far, far larger in caliber with higher flow than just surface capillaries. And therefore, the degree of vitreous hemorrhage is going to be substantially more. Um, and so if you bear all that in mind, then if someone has a significant vitreous hemorrhage, um, the chances are, in the context of acute PVD, the chances are there's a retinal tear causing it, and therefore the risk of uh, retinal detachment will be uh, 30 to 50 percent. Presumably with those very severe hemorrhages, and, and I remember I think when I first saw my first one when I was a trainee, I almost fell off the stool because it was really quite striking. Their visual acuity would be very low if on the chart at all. Would that be a fair? So, so it can, it can vary. Um, so if they if you know uh, they can vary from being moderate to significant. So sometimes uh, I, I'm actually often surprised at how well people can see through okay. uh, reasonable amounts of hemorrhage. But then we have to remember uh, we assess that using a high contrast uh, acuity target called the Snellen chart, you know, which is not representative of, of you know the real world um, so so they often may have reasonable or better than expected snell acuity, although they they may find their vision is significantly affected and the other end of the spectrum you've got people with very very dense hemorrhages not uncommonly people might be using anticoagulants or aspirin um, and and so you know their bleeding tends to be worse as well uh, but, but once you've seen enough of these you'll you'll know the difference between just a very mild very diffuse hemorrhage uh, and that. And then, of course, the other thing to also look at in these patients to also still look for tobacco dust. Because if you've got a significant vitreous hemorrhage and tobacco dust, that's two things that are telling you there's definitely a break there somewhere. Uh, you're just going to find it. And, of course, the important thing here is if the hemorrhage is so significant that you can't see fully 360 degrees around the retina in the periphery confidently, then you can't confidently exclude a retinal break. Uh, number one, if the hemorrhage is that dense, there may well be a break, 
doesn't always, but there may well be. Um, and so if you find a break, great. And if you don't, that's the type of patient you should refer in uh, uh, on the assumption that there's a break there you cannot find. So those are the sorts of patients, again, that need to be referred in urgently. So we've got some quick-fire questions now relating really to epidemiology. Retinal detachments, mm -hmm. more common in women or men? Tends to be more more common in men from the recent epidemiological studies. Uh, in the um, Scottish two-year perspective population-based study by Dan Mitri and the Scottish Retinal Detachment Study Group, um, they found that it was um, uh, more frequent in males than females. So 14.7 uh, out of 100,000 uh, in men compared with 8.75 per 100,000 uh, in females. So there's a reasonable difference there. And it also tends to be a disease more of right eyes than left eyes for, again, reasons we can't quite fully understand that's, but, that's uh, fascinating that, so more right right yeah, eyes than left eye more, more right than left yeah and and this has been shown repeatedly uh, amongst different studies uh, so, but again we, we don't know why so from a practical point of view more common in men than women would that affect a, an optometrist's technical judgment in their decision making or actually they need to be based on what they're seeing inside the eye in the patient's presentation rather than these broader risk factors yeah, I, I think um, statistics like that and also statistics that state that the vast majority of retinal tears occur in the superior retina uh, can be falsely reassuring because would you examine a man more thoroughly than a woman who comes in with the same symptoms? You know, women do still get retinal detachments. Um, just because retinal breaks occur far more commonly in superior retina than inferior, does that mean you wouldn't examine the inferior retina. No, you wouldn't. Um, so someone will still have that break in the inferior retina. Some women will still have that retinal detachment. Um, and so I think, although these are interesting statistics that you know, keep geneticists and, and other people very excited about trying to work out the genetic basis and the sex basis of these, from a pragmatic, practical, in-clinic in optometry practice perspective, I don't think it changes anything. You still need to examine every patient uh, in exactly the same thorough fashion um, as you would, because someone will be that statistic. So great advice, being meticulous, thorough, detective work, regardless of the stats. I think that's great. Advice. Absolutely. And unless the statistics say that there's 0% in women, <laughs> uh, fair enough, but uh, uh, unfortunately it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so slightly changing the topic now, question here on retinopathy or prematurity, does that increase the risk of detachment? Presumably the, the members in fact a lifetime risk of detachment, and would that change how quickly the patient should be referred? Yeah, so um, in ROP, the retinal detachments uh, can occur at several stages. So, uh, of course, when they're in, in babies and they their retinal detachments, which is quite rare in this country for a baby to progress to stage four, stage five ROP where they need surgical intervention is, is quite rare in the UK because we have such a fantastic uh, national um, uh, ROP screening program where patients, uh, babies identified at a very early stage uh, and receive um, the laser or anti-VEGF treatment. Um, some patients can um, uh, detach later uh, in life, 
Uh, and I think some of this is related to the fact that these, these patients often do end up becoming um, short-sighted as a result of treatment that they've received and, um, and just a higher incidence overall uh, as a result of that. So, um, so that would itself increase the risk of rapid saturation. In terms of the question there regarding how quickly should they be referred, the approach to that type of patient should still be the same as any retinal detachment, which is that we don't treat anyone prophylactically as an adult in that regard uh, these days, specifically for ROP. So the, the key message would be give them retinal detachment advice and refer urgently if they have any of the um, referral uh, signs. Um, I think this was the most commonly asked question. So a lot of optometrists mm-hmm. are thinking about this and probably recognizing how difficult this is to detect sometimes. Uh, what would yeah. be your top tips for detection just for optometrists in primary care? Yeah. So, so the issue, as a background, the issue with retinoschisis is that um, chronic retinal detachments that are generally asymptomatic that have been present for a while tend to or can look like retinoschisis. So we're not talking about the acute retinal detachment that progresses quickly and therefore is symptomatic where you get the classic um, hydrated retinal appearance that's also corrugated. We're not talking about that. It's pretty clear how that looks different from a retinoschisis. What we're talking about is how you differentiate retinoschisis that are usually asymptomatic from chronic retinal detachments that are also usually asymptomatic. Now, uh, to in the in the webinar that one of the easiest things you can do is to look at the patient and look at their refraction. So um, retinoschises are extremely rare in myopes. So they're often uh, emetropes or more commonly hyperopes. That's the first thing. If you see what you think looks like a retinoschisis in someone who's definitely myopic, there's a much greater chance that it's a chronic retinal detachment than it being a retinoschisis. So that's a really easy way of putting your money on one side of uh, the possibilities versus the other. Secondly, think about this as a strategy. Look at the patient overall, and then look at the eye working yourself from front backwards. So once you've looked at the patient, then have a look at the vitreous. So if you see tobacco dust in there, that that means that um, there's pigment in the vitreous that shouldn't be there. Now, again, uh, if we assume that this isn't because of the iris, so let's say they've had previous iris trauma during surgery or blood trauma or they're um, you know, an uh, retinitis pigmentosa patient or uh, other causes for pigment in the vitreous, then what's left is that the pigment is RPE. If it's RPE, then there must by definition be a full thickness defect within the neurosensory retina. And that itself would then go against it being just a classic degenerative retinoschisis, where there isn't a full thickness defect. So presence of tobacco dust and the presence of something within the retina that could be retinoschisis or chronic retinal detachment is more likely to favor it being a chronic retinal detachment rather than retinoschisis. Then you would want to obviously look for a break. If you can see a full thickness horseshoe tear or a full thickness atrophic round hole and what looks like an elevation that could be a retinal detachment, again, it's far more likely to be a retinal detachment. Most retinoschisers don't have any 
obvious retinal breaks. When they do, uh, they're usually involving um, uh, one of the leaves of the retinous chysis. So uh, quite commonly they have, uh, when they do have breaks, they have breaks within the outer leaf, um, but not within the inner leaf. And therefore, there is no full thickness communication between the vitreous, the sinaritic vitreous fluid, and the subretinal space. And therefore, they cannot progress to a um, progressive retinal detachment. Sometimes flow from within the sciasis cavity can get under that and you can get a, a form of sciasis retinal detachment that is limited. Uh, but a, a fully progressive retinal detachment arising from a retinal sciasis, again, these are very, very rare phenomenon, uh, only occurs if there's both an break in the outer leaf and a break in the inner leaf uh, of the retinous chysis, which means there's now a pathway through which the vitreous can enter the subretinal space. So retinal breaks, look for retinal breaks. Okay? So retinous chysis, retinal detachment is very rare. So again, if we talk about statistics, it's unlikely you're ever going to see one and it's unlikely to be that. Um, so look for that. Then look for tide marks or high water marks. So High watermarks occur as number one, as uh, at the edge of attached and detached retina, uh, most commonly, uh, and number two, um, after uh, they're a sign of chronicity. So it means that that area has been there for a while. There's been subretinal fluid for a while. In a retina, pure retinal skysis, there shouldn't be any subretinal fluid, and therefore. There shouldn't be any errors of uh, neurosensory retina separation from the RPE, and therefore there shouldn't be any tide marks. Okay? So tide marks are um, far more supportive of this being a chronic retinal detachment rather than retinal skysis in which they are uh, uncommon and unlikely, except in the situation we talked about earlier. And, um, and this actually leads on to another question where we talk about... Um, is pigmentation a barrier to progression? No. Uh, pigmentation around uh, in the border of a chronic retinal detachment or around a hole or a tear merely signifies um, proliferation of the retinal pigment epithelium. And so it's RPE hyperplasia uh, for the correct scientific term. And this merely represents chronicity. It does not represent a retinal scar which would be a barrier to progression and that's why uh, and this links in very nicely uh, with uh, the advice we were giving earlier about referring chronic horseshoe tears where there's often pigmentation if pigmentation was an effective barrier then we wouldn't need to refer them the reason we refer them is because it's not an effective barrier uh, like a retinal scar that is induced by uh, laser or cryoretinopexy. And so that's why we still treat those. On to other things. So we also looked at the method of performing uh, a scotoma evaluation of uh, abnormal versus normal retina in these patients. So in the context of a chronic retinal detachment, uh, there's often still some functioning uh, photoreceptors, albeit significantly degenerate, depending on the chronicity of these. 
there'll still be some functioning photoreceptors uh, and also some, and to a very small extent, uh, some contribution of the inner retina to photoreception. So when you shine a very bright uh, pinpoint beam of light from normal retina into the abnormal area, in a chronic retinal detachment, the light will dim, but they'll still perceive it. So that's what we call a relative scotoma. So relative to the normal area, there'll be a scotoma or a reduction in sensitivity. In the context of a retina schisis, there is splitting between the inner and outer retinas. So in the skittic area, there is little or no communication between the outer and inner retina in terms of synapses. So um, although the photoreceptors in these patients tends to be relatively intact, they are unable to communicate that signal to the inner retina uh, and therefore uh, for that to be perceived. And therefore, if you shine a uh, pinpoint beam of light from normal to abnormal retina, retina schisis, the patient should perceive an absolute scotoma. Uh, i.e. Uh, virtually black, if not uh, black and completely non-sensing retina. So again, that's that's a good way of detecting. Uh, a, f a final way of differentiating the two, which is more uh, more of an advanced um, technique, which we do use occasionally, even when we uh, cannot be sure, is to perform an indented examination. So if you have a retinal detachment with a full thickness break, as you indent that area of retinal detachment, because there's a full thickness break, as you indent, some of the subretinal fluid will be compressed out of the subretinal space back into the vitreous cavity, and therefore the height of that elevation will reduce. So you can close the break, in, in effect. Whereas in a retinous schisis, uh, it tends to be fluid within a closed cavity. And therefore, as you indent, the, there should, there's usually no change and the height of that elevation, um, because there's nowhere for the fluid to escape as you indent. Uh, so that's a slightly more advanced uh, method of telling the difference, which we reserve for really difficult cases. And sometimes they're just cases that we, we just cannot be 100% sure. Uh, but importantly, and again, this is covered, I would not rely on symptoms to differentiate the two, because all locations, because... Chronic retinal detachments can occur in the infrotemporal retina, uh, just like retinal schisis, and suprotemporally, just like retinal schisis. And both uh, are usually asymptomatic. So I would not rely on symptoms to help tell you the difference. I'd rely more, far more on your clinical signs. So some great advice there. So back to basics, detective work, yeah. and, and trusting yeah. what you see. And, and if you if you don't have the confidence to pick up the phone and ask an expert, great advice there. Bit of a cheeky question here now um, from a member about asking your advice about metaphors or descriptions. Describing PVD in practice is always a, a challenging thing, and I think I've got it nailed in practice, and then I'd come across a patient and just stare blankly at me. What would be your tips of analogies or metaphors to use when describing a PVD to a patient? So I try and simply tell the patient in basic terms, but in direct reference to the eye rather than referring to, to any kind of uh, other uh, animate or inanimate objects. So I simply tell the patient the eye is full of jelly. Uh, normally the jelly is stuck to the camera film, which like in a camera is at the back of the camera and therefore at the back of the eye. 
and it's perfectly normal as one ages, particularly if you're short-sighted, that that jelly will eventually separate from the camera film. And in doing so, we'll give you these flashing lights that you're experiencing. And normally when it's stuck to the retina, it can only move around so much. But once it's separated from the retina, it's far more uh, free to move independently with eye movement. And that explains why your floaters then get worse, because the jelly can now float around. And I just leave it at that. Um, I do tell them about retinal detachment risk, and for that I say, uh, in sometimes uh, as the jelly comes off from the camera film, it can be stuck so significantly in one particular area, it can create a hole or a break in the retina, which can then cause the camera film to fall off. And that's when you don't see in that particular area that's fallen off. Uh, and that will manifest itself as a shadow in your vision, usually at the bottom of your field of vision, but could be anywhere. And that's why it's very important to look out for that, uh, particularly in the first um, you know, few weeks to few months by occluding the other eye and, and looking for those symptoms. I, I tend to just, just put it in those terms. And, and I think I've never had a patient that hasn't been able to understand that um, they generally know what an eye is and what a camera is. And I think that that's how they can relate to it. Do you find more patients now are researching conditions in advance? They've, they've turned to Dr. Doodle and they, they've turned up very well researched for their consultations? It's certainly becoming more and more common. Um, and uh, certainly the, the younger generation now uh, tend to be more aware of their symptoms and going towards the middle-aged group as well who have far more access to the internet uh, and, and thankfully, there's a lot more resources on the internet now for people to read. But uh, as you know, um, being your own doctor, using Dr. Google can uh, be a bad thing sometimes. So it's very, very important that we explain to our patients, try not to diagnose yourselves uh, and not present when you should present and, and just generally follow advice. I find that there are certainly trusted websites that you can refer a patient to. So anything on uh, the NHS websites is, is going to be well resourced, peer-reviewed, balanced, and accurate. Um, and uh, so if you are going to refer people to any kind of source of information, that's usually a good bet. And I'll shamelessly plug the Royal College of Ophthalmologists website and the, the materials they've produced with RNIB and the College of Optometrists materials that we've produced online for our members as well. Shameless plug there, apologies for that. Well, shame of me for not for not mentioning those as well, but uh, I think that must have just been uh, assumed. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's some general questions that have come in now. I think really just for general interest from members. Retinal detachment surgery, do you ever perform that under a general anaesthetic, a GA, or is it always generally local? The vast majority of my retinal detachment surgery, I now just do under local anaesthetic, uh, which is far better for the patient in terms of recovery throughput and just being able to get the patient in for surgery because we're then not relying on an anaesthetic. So uh, approximately 9 out of 10 retinal detachments will occur due to a PVD. Um, and therefore in an older age group. Um, and in the United Kingdom, and there, there are variations both within countries and, and internationally, but generally um, most surgeons in the United Kingdom would treat a retinal detachment occurring due to a posterior vitreous detachment with vitrectomy. And that's far more amenable to local anesthesia uh, as the choice of anesthetic than the um, other main form of uh, reattaching retinas, which is what we call conventional, uh, or what used to be called conventional retinal attachment surgery or cryobuckle surgery that involves uh, substantial more uh, invasive 
steps, uh, including dissection around the iron and, and manipulation around the orbit, uh, and suturing on an explant around the eye in the region of the break, or sometimes around the whole eye. Now, that, that involves a lot of manipulation of the eye itself. And most surgeons, certainly in the United Kingdom, uh, do that only under general anesthetic. And the indication for that would be a non-posterior vitreous detachment-related uh, retinal detachment, i.e. Uh, something like a, a round hole, atrophic round hole detachment in uh, myopes, in younger myopes, uh, or dialysis-related retinal detachment. So they're the two classic indications for it. So if we are doing surgery for those, for retinal detachment due to those types of breaks, it would be a general anesthetic, but nine out of 10 would be amenable for a local anesthetic if the patient is amenable. Uh, that depends on the patient factors, of course. So yeah, uh, I think things have changed, certainly from where we were. And the vast majority of surgeons now in the United Kingdom use micro-incision uh, vitrectomy surgery, which means that the, um, the recovery times and the amount of ocular manipulation is also less than with uh, you know the previous 20-gauge uh, vitrectomy that was used up until about um, 10 or so years ago. Okay, so a bit of a uh, how long's a piece of string question now. How good visual yeah. acuity would you expect post-surgery for a macular off-retinal detachment? So would you expect the acuity to go back to 6.6, 6, sort of 0.0, or would there be a couple of lines reduction? So, so this is a, a really important and, and very topical question, actually, because the as vitreal retinal surgeons, how we treat macular off retinal detachments is changing as we speak. And there's likely, I think, to be a paradigm shift in how we triage these patients in you know the next few years moving forwards. Now, uh, just as a background, macular on retinal detachments, people used to prioritize because, hey, you can still rescue central visual acuity. And that's why they were priority. Let's, let's treat them before they detach fully. But actually, studies have suggested that the vast majority of macular on retinal detachments, by the time you operate on them, even if there's a delay of a day or so, uh, are still on. So very few of them actually become off in the interval between presenting to a vitreal retinal service and actual surgery. Um, so obviously, because their central retina never detaches, their visual acuity remains well. Um, in a macular off uh, patient, there's this common misconception that once the macular is off, that's it, too late. And that the prospect for gaining good central visual function uh, is over. So biologically, that doesn't make sense. There's no real reason why if the, the instant um, foveal photoreceptors detach and then a reattach, why they should never function well again. That, that Biologically, that doesn't make sense. What makes far more sense is that the duration of foveal separation from the RPE should have an influence. And that's what we found from studies, and that's what we found anecdotally. So previously, I think the reason macular off retinal patients did poorly is because you thought that they were going to do poorly, and therefore you, don't, you didn't operate straight away. And so they do poorly, right? So it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and often uh, these patients would receive lower priority compared with the macleron patients. And so by the time they were operated, it may well be several days, sometimes a week, sometimes more 
depending on how busy the unit is. And so um, not surprisingly, by the time they receive corrective surgery, assuming they don't then redetach, because of course with delayed surgery, there's a higher risk of PVR and therefore redetachment, which itself affects you know, the central visual acuity outcomes. Um, so by, by the time these patients operate on, they're already going to have a, a lesser visual, central visual acuity prognosis. Uh, in, in, in this, we must remember that visual acuity is only one element of visual function. Okay, that's only responsible for your central visual function. Uh, it doesn't account for your peripheral visual function, which is very, very important. And I would argue more important than visual acuity, because that's what gives you independence. That's what your peripheral vision is, what allows you to navigate. And retinal detachment surgery, even for macrons, even when they're delayed, restores that quite, quite effectively. Now, what's emerged from anecdotal evidence and from recent studies, uh, studies that compare um, visual acuity, so remember we're just talking about central visual acuity, uh, visual acuity outcomes in eyes that received very, in macular off retinal detachments that received very prompt surgery, so between one, so either immediate surgery up to three days, uh, between three days and seven days and beyond seven days. And um, several studies now have, um, and, and these are all retrospective, of course. Uh, it's impossible to do a, um, a randomized prospective study uh, on this, where you deliberately delay patients' uh, surgery uh, into the over seven-day group, for example. So, so this is a study that will, you know, will never get very high-level prospective randomized control data for. It's impossible. But retrospective studies suggest as is my clinical experience, that the earlier you reattach that macula, the better the central visual function. So uh, one study, um, I'd have to, uh, I can't quite remember the exact figures here, uh, suggested that if you operated on macula off retinal detachment, uh, that if you operated within three days, that their central visual acuity uh, could be around six nine. Wow! Assuming there was no other uh, issues, and that you're more likely to get that the earlier in that kind of three days that you operate. Okay, so if you operated with it, you know, on the same day that they detach, they will have a better prognosis uh, than if you delay it, um, and that makes biological sense. When assessing these patients, it's very important that you ask the patient not just when did you start developing flashing lights or when did you develop um, a shadow, but when did you lose vision in the middle? And I think that's my key, key question because if I have uh, the opportunity only to operate on, say, one macular off retinal detachment on a given operating list, say, tomorrow, but I have three patients and uh, in two of the patients their central macula has been detached for well over a week. Well, their, their central retina is not going to regain as much visual functions compared with, say, the third patient in whose central macula detached uh, a, a day ago. So although they would be both, all, all three would be classed as macular or retinal detachments, I think it's very important uh, that we try and subcategorize these patients in order to, A, give them a better idea of their uh, visual potential, but also in terms of um, 
triaging and, and, and prioritizing surgery. I myself have operated on patients who have had macular or fretinal detachments um, that I've got back to uh, with very prompt surgery that I've got back to 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, and I've even got one patient who uh, somehow, and I still can't quite work out how, he's got back to 6'4", vision. He had central macular detachment and received surgery on the same day. Wow. So within, within hours. Um, so just because a macula has detached centrally does not mean that they will automatically do poorly in terms of central visual acuity. And this is a change in the way of thinking amongst the vitro retinal community and should also therefore follow on uh, into uh, optometric practice. Um, so just because someone's a macula off, if they've detached very recently, refer them as though they're a macular on retinal detachment. In some ways, um, you think about it from a biological perspective, if somebody has a, say, a supranasal retinal detachment versus someone who's just become macular off today, uh, in some ways it makes more sense to operate on that macular off patient because by the time you operate on the macular on patient, which might be the next day, for example, with appropriate posturing, that macula is very likely to still be on and therefore still achieve the same prognosis. Uh, whereas significant delay to the macular off patient will, can significantly affect their prognosis. So uh, I think there will be, you know, this is all work in progress. Uh, and I think there will be a change in the, how we approach the macular status in the context of retinal detachments in the coming few years. And hopefully at some point there'll be a, national and international consensus on this but my practice certainly is that i very i take a very careful history i listen to the patient i try and work out when that macula detached for all of those reasons in terms of giving prognosis and scheduling and prioritizing surgery and and so a really useful take-home message for optometrists would be actually just ascertaining the exact point when that central vision was lost and providing yes. that to their local consultant would be really useful yeah. for triaging and ensuring absolutely yeah okay well that's certainly a take-home message for me so that's really useful and, and, thank and you and very also, much and also for follow-up because when that patient then comes back to you uh, most patients do stick to the same uh, practice so once they come back to you after they've had retinal attachment surgery maybe cataract surgery you, you'll be able to assess uh, and 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 have an interest in, in how their vision recovered uh, after all of that and, and be able to do your own correlations but yeah um you know, macular off does not mean automatically mean poor prognosis. And I think that's just a, an automatic knee-jerk kind of um, thought that uh, needs to be uh, eventually eliminated from, from all practitioners. Fantastic. Next question. I know you've covered this already during, um, I think, both webinars, but can you just remind us the difference between white with pressure and white without pressure or a clinical pearl so we, we all remember it forevermore? Yeah, so um, effectively, uh, the clue is in the in the name, in that um, white with pressure tend to only really see when you indent. So if you're not indenting the patient to look at the peripheral retina, um, you won't see white with pressure. Uh, whereas white without pressure is there without indentation. Uh, so typically, white without pressure appears as this kind of distinctive white uh, 
appearance of the peripheral retina. Importantly, it's there without indentation. And it's all, it can be often quite marked, especially on a darker background. So if your patient is um, you know, Asian or black or generally pigmented, then uh, you know, anything light will stand out more against a dark background. So it can often be quite striking. Uh, it's often very well demarcated. And um, sometimes you can get patches of normal, uh, completely normal retina amongst that. And, and so it's important we don't confuse those areas as being retinal holes. We don't know the exact cause of it, but, um, you know, there's several schools of thought. Um, one school of thought feels that it's just an abnormal reflex from a otherwise structurally normal vitro-retinal interface. Uh, and another school of thought feels that it's a it's kind of a manifestation of abnormally uh, strong uh, vitro-retinal um, adhesion. But from a clinical perspective, it doesn't really confer any increased risk of retinal detachment. So they, you know we don't need to see these. We don't need to refer them in. Um, there's no prophylaxis as such. Uh, I think the reason it comes up in the context of vitro-retinal surgery. Uh, is uh, partly also because it can sometimes be confused with a retinal detachment. Sometimes they, you get this uh, initial um, view uh, that makes you think there may be some elevation or subretinal fluid uh, associated with it. So sometimes people feel there could be a subclinical retinal detachment or retinoschisis. Uh, but again, a good clinical examination, looking for all the other signs of retinal detachment or retinoschisis and indentation um, often is the key to differentiating between, um, you know, retinoschisis and retinal detachment and white without pressure. But, but usually it, it's, it's pretty obvious that, that that's what it is. So that's a nice segue into mm. our next question, um, which is how reasonable or how much posterior retina is it reasonable to see without indentation? So I know you're an advocate of really high-quality dilation, so using a synergistic combination of trypectomide, venolethrin, and hydrochloride, so getting the pupil as wide as possible. But with that beautifully wide pupil, and yeah. probably using a slit lamp bio, you, you know, are there any markers, or how far out is it, is it reasonably competent for an optometrist to see out to? I presume they mean anterior retina. Yes, the, sorry, yes. Yeah. There used to be this notion that in order to see the anterior retina, it was mandatory to perform scleral indentation. And that probably was the case historically with the methods that we used to use for examining peripheral retina. Uh, so that could even be things like the direct ophthalmoscope or um, some of the older um, contact lenses, although you may even remember the old ruby lens. Yay. Um, yeah. So um, those sorts of Scenarios, yes, it, to, to get a really good view of the anterior retina, uh, one needed to um, to indent. However, the two things really. Um, number one, a better appreciation as to where most retinal breaks occur, and number two, uh, the advent of better uh, slit lamp based lenses. So most retinal breaks don't actually occur. Uh, the very extremities of, of, of retina, i.e. the aura itself, the junction between the retina and the pars plana. So most retinal breaks occur at the posterior border of the vitreous base, which itself is posterior to the aura. So it's not, it's very anterior, but it's certainly not the most anterior aspect that, uh, of the retina. 
itself. So that's the first thing. Number two is the, as I said, the development of better uh, optical lenses that uh, optics of lenses that allows to see the anterior retina in, in, uh, better. So I think most VR surgeons now, and we'll be confirming this shortly on the basis of a study uh, that is almost completed that I've done of uh, most vitreal retinal surgeons in the United Kingdom, a survey. Uh, most vitreal retinal surgeons now in the United Kingdom don't do scleral indentation in a typical posterior vitreous detachment patient if you get a very nice and adequate view of the anterior retina and the relative, and, and the necessary anatomical landmarks. And, and I certainly don't. Um, uh, of course, I look for other surrogate signs like tobacco, dust, and so on that may increase my suspicion. But if I get a very good view in a very widely dilated people and I'm confident I can see the anterior retina, then that's fine. Um, if for whatever reason there are areas where I'm just not certain that a particular area could be a tear that's actually lying flat, for example, or if there's vitreous hemorrhage, for example, and I may want to do a dynamic indented examination in that area, then those are the sorts of indications where you know, I would use scleral indentation. Um, what I wouldn't do, uh, and this kind of leads on to one of, these, uh, one of our other questions, is rely solely uh, on ultra-wide field imaging to exclude peripheral retinal pathology. I think we're probably on slightly dangerous territory there. Uh, ultra-wide field imaging isn't as ultra-wide field as you may think uh, in terms of getting really good, very high-quality um, images suitable for excluding pathology in the far extreme periphery. I not uncommonly find that if I that sometimes I may see a, an interesting lesion in the extreme retinal periphery, whether it be a tear, atrophic ulva lattice, that I can see well on a well-dilated patient using good clinical examination that is then difficult to photograph, even with very experienced, dedicated ophthalmic photographers in a dedicated high-volume eye unit, uh, with the patient doing their absolute best to look in the area to, into the direction of, of interest. So... I certainly wouldn't rely on it. I certainly wouldn't just do a standard central photograph and expect to see the retinal periphery in any, you know, in, in a diagnostically uh, rigorous uh, capacity. Um, I, there is no substitution for good clinical examination in the dilated patient. And certainly, whatever you do, don't rely solely on ultra-wide field imaging in a non-dilated patient, for example. I know that is sometimes done. And it might be fine just for general documentation, but certainly wouldn't do that in a flashing light and floaters patient presenting acutely. Lots of practitioners do have ultra-wide field imaging and actually it could be providing some false reassurance and actually picking up those lenses and going to the, the core <laughs> skills of looking with a good quality lens on the slit lamp or a headset bio. You, you can't beat and, that. And, and the irony, yeah, absolutely. And, and the irony also is, is not uncommonly, SOD's law is such that the area that you're trying to capture is the area where there'll be significant amount of eyelashes. So, um, so you won't even get them. There must <laughs> be a paper in that. There must be a paper in there, yeah. That's only been my, my, my finding. Maybe I'm just unlucky. Um, talking about headset bio, do you have any tips to optometrists who are attempting to learn or master the technique? Because it's it, it one that takes a lot of practice. 
Yeah, you said it right there. It's practice. There is no substitute for practice. Um, I say to all my trainees who struggle. Well, well, first of all, if you find you're struggling, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, uh, I took a good year and a half of being a dedicated ophthalmology SHO in my practice before I could see anything uh, worth noting using the uh, indirect, at least in the retinal periphery at least. Uh, so it is a very difficult skill to master. Um, you know, you've got to get the hand-eye coordination right. You've got to get the um, setup of the indirect uh, correct. You've got to be comfortable with holding your instrument in an uncomfortable fashion. And particularly if you're doing indentation, uh, it usually feels unnatural in terms of how you're holding your lens and the position of your indenter relative to your uh, other hand and to your body generally. I think with indentation, it's really important. Uh, so with, with the use of an indirect generally, I think it's, it, it's very important to go back to basics. And what I would strongly advise is for optometrists to go on YouTube and look up indirect binocular ophthalmoscopy uh, by uh, one of my former mentors, a gentleman called Brian Little. And he's got about 17 to 18 minute videos of step-by-step step exactly how to set up and use the in binocular indirect ophthalmoscope. And uh, I mean, I've explained it in about a minute and a half, but he, you know, he goes in really good detail. I think all the detail you need about the theory behind how you set it up, how to do it correctly, and then once you know how to do it correctly, then practice it correctly. And then one day, it will click. Great, great advice there. Final few questions now. Um, let's start with um, some relating to phenylethylene hydrochloride. We've mentioned that. Is it safe to yeah. use with patients who have heart problems or who are diabetic? So, um, first of all, what I want to say is that uh, I know I've had a lot of questions about this from other optometrists and from various bodies as well, um, is until you receive specific guidance uh, from your college, you should continue with your college guidelines in terms of dilating patients. That's the first thing. Um, and then what may change in future? So at some point historically, it was felt that phenylephrine in normal concentrations can cause problems with hypertension or problems in diabetics. And like with a lot of things, these kind of messages tend to stick in people's minds and, and even makes its way into the data sheets of these uh, products. And I think that issues regarding their use in diabetics and hypertensive patients is still in some of these data sheets. If, however, you look at the evidence, the evidence suggests otherwise on a population general perspective. So um, hopefully our reviewers are familiar with what we uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So this is uh, some research that looks at high-quality multiple clinical trials and then tries mathematically to synthesize uh, and accumulate all that data and try and come, some, to, come to firm or firmer conclusions uh, on the basis of a much larger data set. So uh, several years ago, there was a study, a meta-analysis and systematic review by uh, Bethany Stavert uh, et al. And if you want to look this up, the title of the 
meta-analysis is called Cardiovascular Effects of Phenylephrine Drops, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And they looked at eight randomized control studies, looking at the effects of both 2.5% and 10% phenylephrine, and their effects on both blood pressure and heart rate. And they had a cumulative total of, I think it was 916 patients. And they measured the effects on heart rate and blood pressure. And their conclusion from this meta-analysis was that 2.5% phenylephrine led to no clinically relevant change in blood pressure or heart rate, and that the changes in blood pressure and heart rate seen even with 10% phenylephrine were short-lived. And therefore, the overall conclusion was that phenylephrine 2.5% on the basis of good, high-quality, randomized control clinical trials was safe to use in clinical routine practice. And this has generally been uh, our feelings uh, in the hospital environment. So, of course, we want to minimize the use of any drugs that are unnecessary. That's generally a good principle overall in, in medicine. So if we were simply to be looking at, say, the poster of hole, the optic nerve, the macula, say, in a glaucoma assessment or a macular assessment for AMD or diabetic retinopathy, then I think, yeah, some using trabecamide 1% itself is adequate and someone that dilates well. If they don't dilate, dilate well for that purpose, that's where phenylephrine will, of course, uh, be useful in trying to get additional dilatation. But from a vitro-retinal perspective, the vast majority of areas that we're trying to look at are in the peripheral anterior retina. And therefore, uh, it does make sense to use phenylephrine, which we know does have a synergistic effect on papillary dilatation. And I think we've all seen that uh, when we use combination of phenylephrine and tropicamide compared with tropicamide alone. Uh, and that means that we can see this potentially side-threatening pathology uh, we're more likely to see the side-threatening pathology because we have a better and more widely dilated pupil. And again, if we combine that with a good lens, uh, then we've maximized our chance of not missing uh, you know, these critical lesions in, in the retinal periphery. So overall, that hopefully should answer both questions of uh, is tropicamide safe, but also uh, the rationale behind using it you know, in this context. Um, thank you. That that's really useful and a really clear answer on, on that topic, which I know a lot of optometrists are very concerned about. They want to do the right thing. Just following on from that, Daniel, I said I'm currently performing a, a survey. For any guideline to change, we need to have the data to back it up. And so I've conducted uh, a survey uh, of um, what I think is the majority of all the vitro-retinal consultants in the United Kingdom and asked specifically this question uh, about phenylephrine specifically by community optometrists in things like MEC schemes and what they feel would be, in their opinion, the minimum dilating criteria. Would it be tropicamide alone or tropicamide and phenylephrine? And we, I should, we should hopefully be reporting on, uh, on the survey you know, in the next few months. And once that is peer-reviewed and hopefully published, we'll then have a UK body of um, consensus opinion from vitro retinal consultant surgeons as to what optometrists should be doing in the community. And once we have that, then uh, there may possibly be some uh, amendment to or, or clarification 
uh, in terms of uh, dilating criteria in this context. But, uh, you know, work in progress and watch this space. Sounds like a really useful piece of research that really may inform practice in the future. So thank you very much for trying that out. And we look forward to finding out the results of that because that may have a really tangible effect on, on, on what we do in practice. So final question now, and it's, I guess, relevant in the current climate where a lot of optometrists in primary care are conducting a, a lot of telephone and video consultations. Do you have any tips on the differential diagnosis of flashing lights? So differentiating from migraine versus uh, due to flashes due to um, posterior vitreous detachment and retinal detachments? Yes, I do. And my tip is um, have a look at the slides in my PVD webinar. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> Good tip. so I, I, I've actually got a couple of slides on this uh, actually in the webinar. So like with most things in ophthalmology, if, you, if you're getting bilateral visual symptoms that are simultaneous, then they're usually not ocular in origin, if that makes sense. So if you develop, so let's say a PVD, it will be far more likely that it presents unilaterally uh, and again, result in peripheral photopsies. Okay, so peripheral photopsies in an eye that is then associated with sudden onset of floaters is far more likely to be a PVD. But flashes can occur due to other ocular and other non-ocular causes. So one cause of flashing would be, say, optic neuritis. So this is where they tend to get photopsies on eye movement, but then you're also going to get other symptoms like the retrobulbar pain. Uh, central photopsies can be a cause of central macular disorders like white dot syndromes, uh, like news or pics and so on. But again, there'll be lesions there that are often visible uh, that will uh, point in that direction, but also the location of the flashes are often more central rather than these peripheral flashes. And again, as I said, look at other symptoms like sudden onset of floaters. And then, of course, you've got to use your clinical signs to look for these, uh, to look for the signs of PVD. If, however, one tends to get bilateral flashes that are simultaneous in origin, then it's less likely to be ocular in cause and more likely to be associated with conditions, say, as, um, uh, as migraine, where you may get bilateral photopsies of sudden of simultaneous onset they may have a scintillating nature to them patients may also report colored lights uh, classic fortification phenomena visual aura uh, onset of headache for example and absence of sudden onset of floaters so these sets of signs again would then point it to being more migraine uh, rather than uh, being vitroretinal occasionally Patients who have postural hypotension can get flashing lights. But again, uh, you know, this tends to occur when they have these hypotensive episodes or when they're standing up, for example. Again, more often likely to be bilateral, uh, but may also get dimming of their vision as well and be associated with um, some lightheadedness. So, so these are the sorts of things we need to bear in mind. And again, you know, think about laterality. Think about other symptoms, whether they're ocular or non-ocular. And when you put all those together, that should hopefully be enough information to help you decide uh, if the photopsies are PVD or not, whether they're ocular or not. Um, and uh, again, you know, if you look at the slides I have there, 
then then that should hopefully be a, a nice little summary of how to tell the difference. Cam, I'd like to thank you very much for giving up so much of your time to help answer these questions. I've certainly really enjoyed listening to the answers and, and I know our members will as well. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you as well. Uh, I said this the other day, but just thank you to um, all my optometry colleagues out there for helping support the NHS during these difficult times. Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon.